trust breeds bravery. And I think that's true in the innovation space. If people trust you, they are willing to take a bigger leap and you don't get there on day one. This is The Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. This is the podcast where we come at you every two weeks with interviews with transformational and innovative leaders on the front lines of change, whether it's in business, management, marketing, uh, cybersecurity, and the like. I am your host, George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And today, we have the great pleasure to talk with Orchid Bertelson, who is the Head of Digital Innovation for New Business Models and Ecosystems at Nestle USA. We talk about the fourth industrial revolution, motherhood, coping with burnout, and advice for innovation in your organization. Yeah, she is hilarious, she's fun, and she's got a really great way of breaking down really complex systems and models into a way that, you know, adult humans can understand. Without further ado, Orchid Bertelson. Let's go ahead and get straight into it. You have a hell of a title. It is, and I am quoting off of LinkedIn, Head of Digital Innovation, New Business Models and Ecosystems. A lot of words. Can you parse that for us? (laughs) It is a lot of words. (laughs) Um, I really should come up with an acronym or something like that. Um, so what's funny about that title is that my role did not exist when I came to Nestle about five years ago. Uh, I started as the digital strategist on the ice cream business. And then probably two years, about two years later, I became head of digital innovation. And that was, again, also a title that did not exist within my organization, um, you know, focusing on the U.S. And so as part of digital innovation, my role was to evaluate emerging technologies like AI, conversational AI, voice, like that sort of thing, um, and create a top-down strategy for what Nestle is going to pursue, how we're going to do that, which partners do we work with, and which brands will do that as well. Uh, my portfolio kind of expands between, you know, 40 to 70 brands, depending on the day, depending on how many we're launching. <laughs> and and we had never really had that top-down strategy. And so all these brands would kind of go off on their own and run tests and learns, which is great that they have that flexibility. But the downside was that those learnings, good or bad, was not being scaled across the organization. So So that was my role as digital innovation. And then within the past couple of months, uh, new business models and ecosystems got tacked on to that. Uh, and to be more specific about what that means uh, is really how do we learn from different startups that are using technology in a really powerful way, uh, kind of dissect what their business models are and also apply that to our business. Now, that sounds a little amorphous um, because it is not one size fits all. Um, but that's kind of where the ecosystem part comes in, too, is that as part of systems thinking, you're looking at the intersection of consumer desirability, tech feasibility and business viability. Um, and, you know, digital isn't this one thing anymore. It is everything. Indeed. And so, yeah. And so new business models and ecosystems is a new part of that. Uh, there's a lot going on that, unfortunately, I'm, I can't share yet. Uh, fair enough. Fair point. <laughs> but don't worry. I will share when we are ready. <laughs> um, so it sounds like you, your part of the Nestle organization is both kind of like a center of excellence in which the brands come to you for guidance on you know, how to go to market with certain strategies or certain technologies, 
maybe also a clearinghouse for vetting those technologies. Could you tell us a little bit about how much, how that works inside the the Nestle enterprise? Because I think for our listeners, you hear Nestle, you think of it as another brand. If you're in the industry as CPG, you understand that it is one brand that is houses many dozens of brands. And it sounds like each has their own marketing initiative, their marketing teams, own KPIs. So how do they, how do they liaise with the innovation department? Yeah, I'm happy to kind of break down the the overall Nestle enterprise and how we approach innovation. So to your point, you know, in the U.S., Nestle as a master brand is not as well known, uh, but we are actually the largest CPG company in the world with about 2,000 brands in our portfolio worldwide. In the U.S., we actually have different divisions. So I am part of the organization called Nestle USA, and we focus on what I like to call human adult food. (laughs) The reason I say that is because we also have Gerber, uh, baby food, of course. We have Purina, so dog and cat food, pet food. Uh, We also have Nespresso and Waters. And so within my portfolio, you know, when I started about five years ago, it was about 40 brands uh, across different divisions, right? So you've got baking, we've got Toll House is our flagship brand there, with ice cream, with Haagen-Dazs. We have uh, in our frozen foods portfolio, we have Lean Cuisine, DiGiorno, Hot Pockets. So all of these household names that I think the average American consumer does not know is part of Nestle. Indeed. I don't think I knew that. We have a very, very wide reach. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's very exciting for me because I get to work on these household names um, and these national campaigns and just like these really big initiatives. And and there's so much brand love um, for our different products too. So within the Nestle USA function, um, we have, you know, uh, what you mentioned, George, is the center of excellence. And so that is an organization that reports into our chief marketing officer. Mm -hmm. And we are essentially internal consultants, right? Um, We don't really own a P&L, but we are available as subject matter experts to consult with the brands, give them advice um, and guidance on their overall strategies, depending on which part of the function um, they're asking for help. And so how I, as you know, head of digital innovation, engage with those brands is that at the beginning of every year, I will go around and present out what our overall U.S. strategy is, um, the different kind of work streams we want to pursue, the different technologies we're looking at. Uh, and, it, and it's a bit of a push and a pull um, between, you know, myself and the brands. I think part of it is I want brands who are hungry to learn, who have that agility um, and sometimes that scale. Uh, that being said, some of the larger brands are sometimes the hardest to work with mm-hmm. because, you know, it's like turning a cruise ship, right? And right. instead of turning um, a speedboat. Uh, but that being said, if you do test with one of the larger brands, the impacts are also much larger. And so that's kind of, you know, there are different ways we evaluate which brands to work with. When um, when they that, are, when you're uh, sharing those technologies, is it sort of like, um, I have this technology and it worked well for Haagen-Dazs. DiGiorno, do you want to try that? Our, I guess my question is, do you ever have people from different brands sitting in the same room together or are you kind of, you are the central point, you're the center of the hub and spoke model? Yeah, we often have, that's a great question. I mean, we often have multiple brands in the room together across divisions. 
Um, you know, the way, the reason why we do that is because I am one, but one person and there are only so many hours in a day. (laughs) So, but, but also to answer your question about, you know, what is our approach when it comes to digital innovation? Is it starting with the technology? The short answer is no. Uh, the short answer is I won't say, Hey, AR is really powerful. We should be doing something in AR. That is not the approach. The approach is what is your brand problem? What are you trying to solve for? And does technology provide a solution for you? And if so, which one? Um, I think that that is our approach to innovation in terms of solving a problem, either a business problem or a consumer problem. That is key because that actually... um, you know, negates that whole chasing bright and shiny object syndrome. There are so Um, many of them though. (laughs) There's so many, there's so, they're so bright and shiny and we're like magpies, right? Like I'm definitely like a magpie. I was like, Ooh, shiny and sparkly. That's exciting. Um, But what, you know, one thing that I use to evaluate the maturity of an emerging tech uh, beyond, you know, (laughs) some of the other tactics, one of them is I look at the Gartner hype cycle, right? Um, Gartner hype cycle, you know, a piece of research that directionally tells you the maturity of a of an emerging technology, like blockchain, for instance. I mean, blockchain came on hot and heavy onto the scene probably about two years ago. It seemed like it was everywhere, and and yet it was at the peak of the hype cycle. The reality was the technology um, just wasn't mature enough for the use cases we were looking at. Yeah, the, apl- so the ap- now, application aspect was a little Exactly. Immature. And so and, and so exactly. So so the hype died down, right? There's still a lot of work. There's still a lot of really really smart people working on uh, blockchain, but I think the bright and shiny object syndrome kind of went away when it comes to people who aren't deep into that technology. Um, so, so I like, so, uh, you know, the funny part about my role is that sometimes I have to pump the brakes a little bit as well. That's great. And I love that you're talking about these bright and shiny objects and it's not, let's you, let's just try this, but okay, let's figure out what's the problem. How do we find a solution? So given that you're dealing with this every day, it seems natural to ask, what does digital transformation mean to you? Yeah. Uh, digital transformation is coming up a lot. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of people are also talking about the fourth industrial revolution, right? And and so yeah. in order to really answer that, I want to give you an example um, of how the first industrial revolution really changed our lives, right? So uh, about a couple of years ago, I decided to take up knitting as a hobby because I don't have many hobbies and I felt like and I'm very like accomplishment driven. So I was like, I need to have a hobby and I need to be good at it. And when so I'm done, to- <laughs> there's a sweater. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, well, you just spoiled it, but I did take a, yeah. So I took up knitting. Right. Um, and I realized that I was knitting not for the enjoyment of creating something, but like I, I really celebrated the end of it when I had a hat or a scarf or something like that. Mm-hmm. So even though spoiler alerts, I did knit a sweater. I turned to my husband one day and I said, this sweater, like I could have, it would have been much cheaper had I just bought it from <laughs> J. Crew. Uh, the yarn's extremely expensive. It's extremely time consuming. Like, I'm not really sure why that is. And he's like, yeah, it's something called the industrial revolution. <laughs> and so I was Which he said in a kind and patient voice. Yes, in a very, very loving way, right? And, uh, you know, part of me was really, really mad at him because <laughs> he was absolutely right. 
there are things that, you know, with every revolution, you know, there are things that we did before where you kind of look back and you're like, why did we do that? That was so time consuming and inefficient. And so that's a very, very long way of answering, yes, digital transformation and the fourth industrial revolution is just changing things much faster. And so what does that mean for marketers specifically? Uh, it means that marketing is dynamic. I think that we used to have a model where you set it and forget it. You create your media plan at the beginning of the year. You make sure that everything is flighted and running. And then you look at it maybe mid-year and then also end of year. And you're like, cool, I'm going to use those insights from the year before to plan out uh, my media or my you know strategy for next year. Uh, and now you're not really seeing that, right? You're seeing uh, real near real-time optimization, which I think is very empowering. Now, all of a sudden, you can you know, turn a dial or pull a lever or whatever it is and see the Im immediate impacts of that. What that means also is that I, I think uh, there's a lot of conversation around how AI will take our jobs, robots will take our jobs. And the reality is that it, you know, this AI plus human um, team actually makes us more human because it asks for us to be more strategic and more creative while taking some of the more time-consuming, repetitive tasks like knitting um, away <laughs> from us. Well, yes, right? and I think that's that's a key argument among some of the more optimistic um, purveyors of AI. I'm not AI. that optimistic. <laughs> I'm really not that optimistic, let's be clear. <laughs> Fair point. As a person. As a yes, person. Yes. But like, yes. for example, there's the argument that like AI is going to replace doctors. And I think the doc, sure. some of the doctors are like, well, that's an incomplete thought. It's like if AI can take off the heavy lifting of diagnoses, which takes the majority of the schooling and the just remembering and the skill and do it more accurately, that actually frees the doctor up to do more of the caregiving and the you know, care planning, which is really the more human part, you know, because right now doctors are computers. You take a bunch of data in and you got to make some sort of uh, output in terms of diagnosis, but maybe AI takes that off their shoulders. Um, yeah. When it comes to transformation, I think you've pointed out something key here, which is the the change. And I think what we see a lot of is, you know, it's a squishy term. Digital transformation gets bandied about. And there is a difference between just using digital technologies to optimize, like you're just shaving some savings here, some efficiencies there versus transforming, like you're inventing entirely new business models or entirely new ways to reach customers. Yes. <laughs> was that a question? It wasn't. It was just call. a thought. It was okay. a thought, but I think it's in, I think it's in line with, with what you're saying about if we think of it as a fourth industrial revolution, it, it does have to be, a, a true change in the way that business is conducted. Yes, absolutely. Because digital and technology, it just is. It's like when social media came about and we started calling it media 2.0 and now it's just media. It's right. the same thing, right? Yeah. Because digital marketing or digital blank was this um, categorization, right? Uh, for the past couple of years. And now it's not digital marketing. It's just marketing. It is this, yeah. the transformation is that digital is just a way of life. And I think the thing that is tricky about the word digital or transformation or, or the both put, you know, put together um, is that it means different things to different businesses. Mm -hmm. And I think that in this age of needing of like complexity and change, 
everybody kind of wants to bucket things or, you know, have a very like standard definition for one thing. And that's unfortunately unfeasible. <laughs> it's just not, uh, you know, transformation just means so many different things. And the pace of it is different for different industries too, mm-hmm. because, you know, and I, you know, I can't comment on the strategies of different beauty businesses, but when you look at different uh, consumer product categories that are really leveraging technology well, I think beauty and fashion are the first movers. Yes. And you can immediately yeah. see the use case, right? Yeah. But the problem is that when it comes to categories like grocery, where you are still selling through retailers um, and and large distributors, you know the the consumer or the person's shopping behavior just isn't going directly to online or D to C like beauty as fast as beauty anyway. Right. Like it has to be the right value proposition. Your unit economics has to work out. You know, I think that right now what I'm actually really interested in is that when you look at the various startups, there's all of a sudden this push for profitable growth. Right. Because the days of just raising a ton of money and burning all of it to create a moat uh, and having no path to profitability, like that's not a thing anymore either. And just so, results like, in cheap just, swag. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> expensive, high quality swag would be great. Um, but, you know, I think that 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 is yet another example of like digital transformation. Yeah, it could apply to all of those use cases. It depends on your industry. It depends on the pace of your industry and also like consumer behavior. Yeah. I think that's, that's interesting. And you, you raised the point about how these technologies uh, come to the surface and how they're brought to bear on business. I think about digital right now, we're talking about AI, we're talking about AR, but accompanying that is new realizations about data privacy and the calls for regulation, right? The, the common sentiment about, regulating social media now versus what it was in say 2010 when it was first made public and kicking off. So you're in California, we have CCPA on, we actually have CPRE, sometimes called Kepra close behind. Um, And I've heard you speak previously about how these regulatory measures, which some view as impediments are, are actually creative challenges. Like, you know, that this should force marketers to think better about how do you communicate with people who truly opt in, who want to be, how do you create a, an environment where they want to be a part of it? So where you are at, in Nestle and at the front line of innovation, have you observed any uh, shifts or trends in marketers thinking around their relationship to data privacy and security? Uh, not yet. Short answer is not yet. Uh, you are making me sound like an optimist, by the way. <laughs> I apologize <laughs> so, for that. <laughs> that's, that's all right. I'll forgive you this one time. Uh, when it comes to CCPA, GDPR, um, just overall the attention to data privacy, uh, I do think that that is a very good thing that will challenge us to be better. I think as marketers, um, you know, I'll back up a bit. Sometimes you hear about a new technology or maybe a new ad tech or ad format um, or a way to reach consumers. And you're like, that's as a marketer, that's very cool. And then as a person, you're like, that's kind of creepy. And so I think that we should ask ourselves the question, just because we can, should we? 
And I think that with the rise of, uh, you know, or the attention with CCPA, I think with the increased conversation around regulating um, different digital platforms, I think part of it is just that the everyday person is under starting to understand how much data they're giving up um, for personalized communications. Mm-hmm. And and as digital marketers, I mean, we are inherently more savvy about the space. I mean, we are literally getting paid <laughs> to use this knowledge um, every day. And so I do think that is the responsibility for up to us is to ask the question, just because we can target that person based on this, should we? Is it a good experience? Is it a value-add experience? Or is it a um, potentially creepy experience? And how much data is enough data? Uh, we talk about first-party data, third-party data, and the, the reality is that they are it, it, we're working with people, right? Um, and so, if a piece of creative that we're trying to put out there is uh, really geared towards, you know, like pepperoni pizza lovers, how much personal data do you actually need for that? Right is the question that I would pose. Um, and so, I think that there is inherently a responsibility that we need to put on ourselves to say all right, to provide the best consumer experience possible, what is the minimum amount of data that we actually need? That's a, yeah, that's a good, um, that's sort of borrowing from the minimum viable product model for uh, uh-huh. product design and development. I Yes, and that strikes me as right because when I was working for a digital marketing agency, I remember getting these huge data sets. And I think if I remember correctly, this client was, um, financial services like retirement investment services and this data set was like everything under the sun and I was like mm-hmm. how does understanding that this group of people over indexes on buying like fish sauce in the grocery store I was like I think there's too much data here I was like mm-hmm. if I'm trying to actually make reasonable decisions like having that data that's more a paralysis by analysis it's like I don't, I right. don't know how to take any action off of that information yeah yeah. And, and I think that that's the point where with data, more isn't always better. Like when it comes to just acquiring data for, I guess, marketing activities, I think that the unsexy part is that that data needs to be structured and needs to be labeled and it really needs to be well organized. And you as a person or as a marketer, need to understand what you want that data to do or what kind of decisions you want to make based off of that data. Um, and I think that there are a lot of times where we view different things as a silver bullet, you know, the answer to all of our problems, whether it's more AI or more technology or more data. And the reality is that it's more nuanced than that, right? Which I think is really empowering because we as marketers get to make that decision. That's right. <laughs> so again, very optimistic view. There you go. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's. I want to take a, a slight turn here, small detour. So we started talking before the interview that you have, uh, you were talking on a travel podcast, Mike. So you're a fellow podcaster. Um so tell us a little bit about uh, the Mama Juice pod and how it came to be and your adventures in podcasting. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I am a co-host on Mama Juice, a podcast where we talk about, and you know, my co-host Stephanie and I really just talk about the realities of being working moms. 
Uh, that project started, um, you know, not <laughs> not too surprisingly after I came back from maternity leave, um, after having my daughter Quinn, who's two and a half now. Um, you know, before I had a child, I expected, I, I'm actually still very fulfilled by the work that I do. Um, and, and maybe overly so sometimes, which we can talk about burnout too later. Um, but <laughs> after I came back from maternity leave, I realized that it was unfair of me to expect that work was going to fulfill every part of my being, which had become more multidimensional um, since having my daughter. You know, there's nothing, at least, and, and I will only speak to my personal experience um, because <laughs> that's the only thing I know. Um, but, you know, having to take care of human life <laughs> is very humbling. Yes, um, for sure. And, and, and I think that at this stage of our career, too, like we've probably you know, picked a specialization of, a, you know, for me, probably like more over 10 years ago. And so it's not very often that I'm thrown into a situation where I absolutely know nothing about the topic that I can't just like research my way out of. Right. I mean, yeah. some people and, might and convince you that you can, but it is actually <laughs> impossible. No. And and what's what's kind of strange is and it's a trippy thought for me every day. But I'll look at my daughter. I'm like, I grew you like I grew you into existence. I created sentient life, which is crazy. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, yes, and is. so, yeah. And and here is a part of you that you grew that was literally a part of my body that is now existing out in the world as an individual. And I think that's the scariest part. Right. Is that this um, kind of this idea of control when it doesn't exist. And nothing that I was reading or seeing on Instagram was making me feel much better. <laughs> on Instagram, you know, everything you got is perfect. Instagram, everything is perfect. You've got, you know, this, uh, this, this mom who had just given birth and she's like, you know, breastfeeding in a feet open field with a flower crown on <laughs> or, or even, and you know, you can, you can see this in your head, right? Yes. Cause I think we, I don't know that this yes. post exists, but we've all seen a version of it. And yeah. I think before too, during pregnancy, I mean, I had a fairly easy pregnancy with no complications, except for, you know, a slight bout of gestational diabetes, which nobody tells you about either. Um, you know, you're supposed to feel like you're glowing or you're, you know, you are just like the best version of yourself and you're doing this like very, very noble thing. And, you know, I was not glowing. I was, you know, sweating and like, you know, breathing hard after like walking up the stairs. You know, there was nothing that was particularly magical about it beyond, you know, growing a human person. And I think that with motherhood and with, you know, kind of our, our society as it is today, it's, it's very hard to ask for help or it's very hard to talk about, you know, how difficult things are or the reality of it because of this Instagram age that we live in. And so that's kind of where I got the idea um, to start a podcast, uh, Mama Juice, to really talk about the reality of motherhood, that it's okay to struggle, that it's okay if not everything is magical, like you're not, you're, you're not a failure. <laughs> right? um, and I just, I, and, and at that time, and we started it a couple of years ago, I mean, at that time, like that message wasn't really out there. Now, since then you have really outspoken people um, who are role models, right? I don't know if they want to be, but they are like Chrissy Teigen or Ali Wong of trying to bring humor um, and shine a light on the fact that it's okay to struggle. And, you know, we all do. And that is something that is human that we can all bond together on. Um, so that was the premise for it. 
um, you know, we've taken a little bit of time off, um, to be honest, because it is hard to do a podcast. <laughs> there's a lot yeah. of, there's yeah, a lot agree. of work that goes into editing. <laughs> yep. There's a ton of work. Um, and, uh, you know, there were, there were some personal things that we were working through, um, and to put a pause on it, but I'd like to get back to it. Um, potentially with a new format. Um, so, you know, stay tuned. Well, the, uh, <laughs> we will. the uh, offer stands. If you need, want a uh, dad perspective, I'm, I'm happy to join. Yes. Yes. So I, you know, I think the dad perspective and also the idea um, of parental leave, right. Instead of maternity leave is so yeah. important. Because it's the same with having changing tables in men's bathrooms, right? Yes, I, uh, I judge a place if I have to go into the guy's bathroom and I got the kid. Uh, fortunately, yeah, both I, are out of diapers. But if I just see in the corner that there is a changing table bolted to the wall, you get like bonus points in my mind. Because oh, you have made certain assumptions that are correct. Exactly, exactly. And and I think, too, with our generation, there is more of this... Um, equal parenting right like nothing will ever truly be equal because of this like emotional load that that women carry and you know and it's funny. physically carry a human inside yes, of you yes, yes. Yeah. yes and then outside i mean my daughter's like 30 pounds now i'm still carrying her around <laughs> um although my my biceps are, are very very strong um but yeah, I think that when when it comes to that conversation and including dads and like father figures is so incredibly important because you can't you can't change um you know if you don't have the information, right? Like you can't make the right decision if you if you don't have access to the information. Um so yes, would love to have you on. We will figure it out. Cool. Happy to do it. Um let's turn our attention back to adult human food. As you said. <laughs> so we saw in your bio that it says, since the days of dial-up, she dreamed of a job where she could use digital communications to connect people and tell stories. Paired with her love of food, Orchid found her perfect job at Nestle. What is your favorite food? My favorite food? Uh, well, I love a good burger. Uh, but if you're talking... <laughs> Uh, so in general, it's like burger, dumpling, noodles. Um, mm. If you're talking within Basic the Nestle, or, yes, exactly. I mean, that is my food pyramid. I think it's probably more of like a food sphere because um, that's <laughs> the shape you turn into. Um, but yeah, I have a couple. I mean, like I love butoni pesto is like one of my favorite things in this world. Um, and that is something that we make. Uh, I love Toll House. It's the only chocolate chip um, or chocolate morsel that I bake with. Um, yep. I love having, yeah, this is, I mean, it's hard to choose. It's like trying to choose your favorite child. Although I, my hypothesis is that every parent does have a favorite child. Um, but That's what I, I tell my mom. DiGiorno. Yeah, exactly. I love DiGiorno because it's really, you know, as a working mom, like you get home and then sometimes you just can't bring yourself to make dinner. And so having DiGiorno's in the freezer at all times is like a really, really good plan B. <laughs> So that's like that's like almost like my breaking case of emergency. Oh, yeah. Like you kind of yeah. always have to. Yeah, sometimes you just gotta pull the cord and it's gotta be pizza. Night. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then of our ice cream por portfolio, you know, I I love Hagen Dazs. I think Hagen Dazs is absolutely one of the best ice creams you can get out there, especially for the price point we're at. 
I mean, I think we actually compare um, pretty toe to toe with, you know, ice creams that are probably four times um, the price of ours. I am um, going so, to place a safe bet that the vast majority of Americans would probably agree with you. Yeah. I, yes, yes. Yeah. Please buy more Hagen does. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, you can kind of see across the different categories. Like we just have, um, really get great products that people really love because you know at the end of the day they taste good and they're affordable um and so i think you know even when you're talking about solving a problem like we we do that with technology of course but we do that with our foods too like we're we're trying to make lives like easier and you know just a little bit better um, for all the consumers that we serve I love that. It's all about transforming and, and making things a little bit easier. So that really brings us back to the idea of self-care, something you, you mentioned a little bit when you were talking about your podcast. Can you tell us more about your experiences with burnout or the process um, of recovering from that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know that you're <laughs> truly ever recovered from <laughs> burnout, but I knew that I was burned out because I hated everything. I like literally hated everything. <laughs> uh, symptom number one. <laughs> yeah, symptom number. So if you're generally a happy person or pretty content with the world, and you all of a sudden you feel like you hate and resent everything, and every email that comes in triggers a fight or flight syndrome, you might have burnout. Um, yeah, it, it came. It came at a time when there was just a lot of things going on professionally and personally, and I feel like I just wasn't. I was trying to do so much that I wasn't doing anything well. Um, so it kind of speaks to hey, you always kind of have to prioritize the things that are important and that matter. Um, so that was part of it. I think that, um, and my coach, I had gotten a, a career coach uh, for a bit who's like a business therapist. Her name's Corey <laughs> Lynn. She's great. I mean, our, our personalities matched up well. It was just really nice to have someone um, objective to talk to, to bring this problem, right? And kind of understand what the underlying issue is because you just kind of have to um, you know, take an objective view uh, of something because sometimes when you're in burnout, you know, and let's say you like are disliking this project and, you know, as a, as a result, you dislike everybody on the project and someone says something pretty innocuous and you're like, I can't believe they said that. And you go down this like drama spiral again, <laughs> also a pretty good sign of burnout because that person doesn't deserve that kind and they're not like out to get you. Um, but for me, you know, it was from my coach, she had said regarding my burnout that, um, the tools that used to work for me when I was in a quote unquote rut don't work anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and how I used to get out of a rut, you know, in the past 15 years of my career was that you just put your head down and work harder. You can work yourself out of this rut. And unfortunately yep. that no longer works. Right. And so she said, it is very similar to, you know, me running my whole life and all of a sudden to go faster, I need to get myself into a car. I was like, well, that sounds really nice. She's like, but in order for you to get into that car, you got to stop, right? And you got to go find the car and get in the car. So it may feel like you're slowing down, but actually you have to learn this new set of skills um, to get you that much further. And so what I was doing before wasn't working the way that I used to anymore. Um, and I think the important thing that I want to convey about burnout is that it happens to everyone. And I think it happens more than ever because we are all extremely online. Yes, uh, for we, sure. We, right. You always have your phone. 
Um, if you're not in front of your phone, you probably have another screen open. I mean, it, it's comical when I look at my screen time on my iPhone because it's like six hours or something, <laughs> but it doesn't account for the time I'm in front of my computer. That's <laughs> so, right. Oh, yeah. so, yes. so truly yeah, more have, like 18 hours. <laughs> truly more like 18. The only time I am not on my phone um, or in front of a screen is when I'm sleeping, right? Because even yeah. when I'm cooking, sometimes I'll pull up a recipe um, on my laptop. Right. Um, and so, you know, work or other people will never set boundaries for you. Like you have to do that for yourself. Now, as a working mom, if I said, all right, I am just going to, I'm not going to be available uh, between 7.30 and 8.30 every day in the morning because I have to drop my kid off at preschool. I think a lot of women will think, oh, well, that'll set my career back. Or what if, you know, now people will judge me and say, you know, she's not available for that hour. Like, oh, she's a mom. She has a kid. And and what I learned is that you can't control what other people think and feel, right? Like, for just sure. like your toddler like, yes, they were a part of you. Now they're an individual. You have no control over it. But what you can control is yourself, right? Yes. And how you approach the world. And it is very important for me to give her my 100% attention when I'm getting her ready in the morning and getting her to school. And you know what? I think that, you know, it is up to, you know, people in our position to set the example um, for those coming up, you know, behind us. Right. And and, uh, and yeah. for sure, there's also just the there is demonstrable payoff in study after study that like if you do give your brain that downtime, you are actually more effective when you're on. There is a diminishing return to just being yeah. exposed and working all the time. Yeah, I, I, I the science backs why we need recovery time. The problem is this idea of hustle culture. Right. Right. You see in the news, these CEOs, um, you know, they're really glamorizing the fact that they are sleeping in a in a sleeping bag under their <laughs> desk because they're so dedicated. That's not feasible. And right. that I, and I and I don't think we should celebrate that. And yet we do. Right. Especially in Silicon Valley, especially in tech. And, yeah. you know, the reason why we keep celebrating in that is because there is no other example. Right. It's like, hey, you know, if X equals Y. Like we think there's causation when maybe it's like just a very, very loose correlation. Right. Yes. And I think, um, I think, we, you know, um, we have begun to see a little bit of that and push back with screen time to the point that, you know, Apple introduced controls into the devices. Nope. And I'm interested in how we translate what works for us as individuals into the organizational level. So for example, at, uh, in a center of excellence dedicated to innovation, I think some people would think they need to move fast, uh, the fail fast culture, this, that, and the other. But I also, it also strikes me that to do what you were talking about, which is to not fall victim to shiny object syndrome, actually requires the space and the time to think deeply and more carefully. Again, what is the business problem you're trying to solve, not what can I throw at the wall? So I'm interested in how you kind of balance the need for innovation at Nestle, uh, but also taking the requisite time to, you know, think very uh, deeply about the problem. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, part of it is that innovation has 
especially digital innovation, I think everybody thinks that if you just have the right idea, you can act on it. And so you try to throw as many things at the wall as possible, right? Mm -hmm. And the truth to innovation, why innovation works is very, very boring. It's It's really about having the right, building the right muscle, having the right process. So that when something is in early, it has an early indicator of success, you know how to pour fuel on it. So I think that there's a lot of myth around innovation. I mean, sometimes, you know, the image that comes to mind is just a bunch of people with, you know, different colors, sticky notes, putting them on a wall and ideating and greenhousing and it's all of that. That's the easy part. The easy part is the ideation. The easy part is the creativity. The hard part is making it work and executing on those. So I'm sure, you know, I'm not going to speak to your experience, but in my experience, I come across a lot of people who are really, really good at uh, presenting a vision um, or, you know, talking about the future and talking about the possibilities. But there are very few of those people who are also good at making those possibilities a reality. And so that's innovation, right? is yes, there's the speed, but you don't get to speed until you build the muscles and the process and just like really, really the rigor that goes behind, you know, creating, like making those ideas come to life, but also evaluating them against a certain set of criteria. So like, even I can make innovation sound boring, but like, it really is like the process and the execution that really sets you apart. Brilliant. So you had referenced trying to turn a cruise ship earlier. Um, what advice would you give to other large enterprises, CPG or otherwise, that how do the centers of excellence, how do the heads of innovation, because we've seen this title show up more and more lately, so people are allocating budget towards this. How would you advise them on how to you know, do battle with the cultural inertia that naturally comes when you're trying to push something new you know, how do you encourage them to fail forward? How do you, how do you get that buy-in across an enterprise? Uh, be the change you want to see in the world. <laughs> uh, so I think that when it comes to advice to different innovators within large companies, um, you have to come up with different proof cases or you have to actually start doing the work so that you can show results that are tied back to business objectives um, and provide business impact, right? Um, You know, to my previous point about a lot of people really good at selling in the vision or being like the innovation hype man, um, you know, you're not like that's, that's fun and all, but in order to create change that you can build on, you have to do the work. Yeah, I think and, I, we call and, that uh, yeah. leading by doing rather than leading by meeting. Like anyone can exactly. set a meeting and just like, let's get on the whiteboard and figure this <laughs> totally. out. Totally, <laughs> totally. And, you know, when you're working across so many different um, stakeholders and brands with different business objectives, you know, uh, what how to get them on board is by showing them the numbers or showing them the proof. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the, the thing and and that paired with knowing their business really, really well. That is something that I wish that, you know, going back, you know, four or five years, I would have um, done better. Um, is just understanding the ins and outs and nuances of the different brands and their businesses um, to really show what kind of impact. Because 
you know, you can talk about the change that can happen three to five years from now, but their need is immediate. Right. They're measured, right? they're measured, you know, quarterly, just yeah. like everyone else. Exactly. Exactly. They are. And so I think by being empathetic and understanding what they care about and then positioning the change that you want to make or the innovation that you want them to pursue in a way that they can easily empathize and see how it can impact their business both immediately and long-term, that's the most important part. And so I think like even with innovation, it's the communication and the translation that is a big part of my job too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because if it if you didn't, it would just sound sort of like this top-down edict, right? yeah. like do this, Yeah, but, but you got to, yeah. you know. Take a few and steps it's like, why? Them. It's like, why are you doing that? <laughs> right. Why, why should I follow you? Why should I trust you? I think in large organizations, it's still very much based on relationships too. And I've, I've come across a couple of people who think that relationship is a, is a bad word, right? Mm. Uh, within organizations. Because they're like, oh, well, that's just subjective on whether or not they like you. I was like, no, that's actually not true. It's whether or not they trust you, right? Yeah. Because um, when I was on the agency side, um, our old chief strategy officer, who's still a mentor of mine, uh, he used to say, trust breeds bravery. And I think that's true in the innovation space. If people trust you, they are willing to take a bigger leap. And you don't get there on day one. And so I think patience, you know, again, something, again, another try saying patience is a virtue. I think people within the innovation space, especially if they're coming into a large company, they think that they're going to be able to change things from day one. And it's actually more iterative, just like MVPs, right? It's just more iterative than that. Um, so, so I'd advise be patient. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a multidimensional chess, diplomacy, trust. I like that. <laughs> um, great. Well, I think that's the time that we have. The hour has flown by. Thank you so much for the time. Do we have commercial breaks? I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> just kidding. no. I mean, if you want to put in a plug for one of your brands, yeah. I guess we can allow it. Well, I, I think I, I think I plugged in quite a few of them. So. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, trolled a few others. It's all right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, no. Me, never. Never, never. All right. Well, well, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Um, and I will see you guys in a few weeks. That's right. Well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for tuning in. If you like what you've heard, give us a rating, give us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Um, in the meantime, we give our thanks to Abby Bruce, as ever, for sound design and production, Matthias Cephalidi for our theme music. And until next time, stay safe. This is the Safeguard Zero Hour signing off.